Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the second instalment today um, of our tribute to Anne Boleyn on History Hack. Uh, This is really good. I'm really looking forward to this one because I actually think the guy we're going to talk about is a total weasel and I want to see if I'm right or not. So Alina, who's with us? (laughs) Do you know what? I thought you were going to say something completely different, but never mind. (laughs) (laughs) That works too. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. We have Lauren Mackay with us, who is a Tudor historian specialising in the 16th century. She's published two books. Uh, the first one, which is Inside the Tudor Court, Henry VIII and His Wives Through the Spanish Ambassador, and her newest book, Amongst the Walls of Court, The Untold Story of Thomas and George Berlin. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am a great fan of these men, actually. <laughs> Brilliant. I can't wait to hear the so other side it. of the story. <laughs> bring it. Whereabouts are you and how is lockdown? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I normally live in the UK with my husband, but we travelled to Australia uh, to visit my parents. I'm from Sydney originally. Uh, got caught, still here. Um, I was emotionally prepared for spring and we're currently in the middle of autumn and it's just really uh, strange. Okay, well, it's not that bad then, uh, but it's no, a long way really. to be from home, it is. isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Have you got like any pets or anything that are... Uh stranded i actually no i i uh my my cat is actually here i left i stranded him with my parents about six years ago so this is kind of you know it's a nice little reunion for for me and the cat he's happy yeah my cat's (laughs) loving this shit too uh let's talk about (laughs) we're here today we're gonna talk about thomas and george as basically we're gonna put them front and center instead of talking about Anne and chucking them in on the side um absolutely because Thomas does come across as a complete weasel um, in the Tudors, which I think is probably the only real exposure people may have had to Thomas Boleyn. Um, and the same with George as well, but you've written a whole book on them. So uh, give, us, give our listeners a little background history um, on the Boleyn family before Anne comes along. So where did they come from um, and how big a deal were they? Yeah, so, you know, when we think of the, the Boleyns, we think, of course, Hever Castle, uh, but that's not actually where their story began. The Boleyns weren't from Kent. They were actually uh, East Anglians, mm. and they could trace their ancestry back to the early years of the Norman Conquest. Now, it's not until shortly before Thomas's generation that the Boleyns become visible in the extant records, uh, when they had actually already become quite politically significant and financially successful. But prior to this, there's not a lot of information information on the family. So some of our first encounters with the Boleyns include Thomas's great-grandfather Geoffrey and his wife Alice. They were one of the great families of Seoul in Norfolk. Now Seoul is not even a one pub, one horse town. It's like a bend in the road with a church <laughs> and a bench. But anyway, uh, so, so Geoffrey Boleyn was not like a lord of the manor. 
Uh, he worked on the land. He was involved in farming and the all-important uh, wool trade. Now, Jeffrey, I have to say, was very much an ends justifies the means sort of man. He was a little bit reckless if his appearance in numerous court hearings is any indication, always suing and being sued for things. Uh, but it was actually his son, Jeffrey, also called Jeffrey, I should say, who was a crucial Boleyn because he made the family's fortune in trade and commerce. And it was this Jeffrey Boleyn who introduced the whole family into the realm of nobility. So what he did was to pioneer for the family this concept of, of a newly rich merchant family marrying into noble ancient family um, and in turn acquiring gentility, land and titles. So this Jeffrey Boleyn married Anne Hu the daughter of Lord Thomas Who. They were a socially superior family to the Boleyns and they offered these all-important connections. So his success really marked the family's first foray into property acquisition uh, and garnered for the Boleyns all the privileges that accompanied serious wealth. So this Geoffrey was, of course, the, the grandfather of, of Thomas Boleyn. He founded the, the, the family fortunes and he reached the pinnacle of his career when he was elected Lord Mayor of London. Now, his son was William Boleyn. William was less interested in being a merchant. He was more concerned with land and tenants in his home county of Norfolk. And this William actually married uh, Margaret Butler, uh, whose family hailed from Ireland, and they actually held the prestigious title of the Earl of Ormond. So the Boleyns were moving, up on, moving on up in the world. Our Thomas Boleyn was the eldest surviving son of William and this Margaret Butler. Uh, he's born in 1477, so he really grew up in a world of wealth and privilege. And significantly, it was Thomas's mother, Margaret Butler, who secured a most advantageous marriage for Thomas, forming an alliance with one of the most distinguished families, the powerful Howards. The powerful Howards were out of favour during the reign of Henry VII because they backed the wrong horse at the Battle of Bosworth, but they were still a political force to be reckoned with. So Thomas married Elizabeth Howard. We have now three generations of Boleyns allied with three powerful and influential families, the Who's, the Butlers, the Howards. So they might not have begun as a family of wealth and privilege, but they were certainly among those who achieved it. So when does Thomas Boleyn appear in the sources? So in the, in the reign of Henry VII, uh, some, I think sometime in 1496, 1497, Henry is determined to go to war against Scotland and he demands a special subsidy from Parliament that required a new tax, which is always so popular amongst the people. <laughs> so the reaction in the south of England was quite violent and that's where we first come across Thomas Boleyn. He's age 20 and he's alongside his father William fighting in the Kentish contingent of the King's army who were facing a rebel army of approximately 30,000 pissed off Cornishmen and they were protesting Henry's taxes. Now, uh, so that's really our first indication of the young Thomas Boleyn. A short while later, as I said, he marries Elizabeth Howard and that marriage really marks the period in which Thomas emerges from the sources more frequently. So they have four or five children by 1505. Uh, we know George, we know Anne and we know Mary, but tell us more about the perhaps the Boleyn children that we haven't really heard of. And what was life like for them, especially George? Yeah, it's tricky because we have so little evidence. As you say, they had at least five children. Uh, we don't know what happened to the other Boleyn children, Henry and Thomas. One is buried near his father in uh, St. Peter's Church at Hever, and the other is in the Sydney Chapel in nearby Penshurst, which the Boleyns actually owned later on. We have no idea how they died or when. Uh, they were almost certainly children and never made it to adulthood because they don't appear on the sources at all. Now, for the surviving Boleyn children, as I said, the evidence is a little bit tricky. Uh, certainly, they enjoyed quite a privileged childhood. Mary and George's educations 
so difficult to pinpoint. I'm sure that Mary likely had private tutors. And of course, we all know, uh, went to serve the Archduchess Margaret of Austria, which was an enviable position that, had, that Thomas secured for her. And then she went on to serve Queen Claude of France. Now, George is interesting. He was likely the youngest of the siblings. Uh, likely privately tutored. It was uh, sometime claimed that Thomas sent George to be educated at Oxford University. This is really difficult to prove as the records don't go that far back. Um, the age for entry to Oxford was about 17. So I, it's, it's highly unlikely. But children of the upper class are often went to be taught by scholars who actually attended these universities. We see that with uh, Thomas Cromwell's son, Gregory, for instance. So it's likely that perhaps he went to Oxford University to be to be tutored by Oxford scholars. Uh, we do know that George then becomes a page to the king in 1514. And from that time, he's more or less a permanent member of court. So when did Thomas Bellin enter into court life and how did that happen? So it was really significant for Thomas uh, Henry VII's reign because with this first Tudor king came this idea of new men. These were courtiers chosen primarily on merit rather than those hereditary lords who, during the previous Yorkist reigns, really dominated England. So these new men were not of noble blood, but they were educated, they were intelligent, ambitious, and they took advantage of their opportunities to advance themselves and their families. Uh, but Thomas Boleyn was well-connected already at court. Uh, his, father, his father, William, was well-known and well-liked, but his father-in-law, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, was one of the most important and influential men at court, and he was especially close to the king and also very close to his son-in-law. On his maternal side, his grandfather, Thomas Butler, was a great friend to Henry VII. He also served as Lord Chamberlain to Henry's queen, Elizabeth of York, and Lord Chamberlain to Catherine of Aragon from her first year as queen. He was very, very close to Thomas Boleyn. So these two titans of the Tudor court really ensured Thomas's success um, and trajectory. And really from Arthur's, Prince Arthur's wedding to Catherine of Aragon in 1501, from that moment, Thomas was present for every christening, coronation, marriage and funeral until his death. So what was court life like for him under King Henry VII? You know, when we talk about Henry VII's court, we always kind of imagine it as sort of somber and oppressive and, you know, watched over by a shrewd <laughs> and miserly king. And that's not that's not actually the case. Um, apart from some threats to Henry's kingship and um, fasting periods, which bordered on oppressive, uh, the court that Thomas and his family knew actually were experiencing a, a glorious age. You know, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York had named their first son and heir, Arthur. This myth of Camelot permeated the court. So Henry Henry understood the power of display. He recognized the need to promote the magnificent, magnificent sorry, I can't even say the word today, magnificence <laughs> of, the, of the monarchy. And, uh, you know, the English court cultivated these relationships with some of the finest poets and philosophers and humanists of the age. Uh, so under Henry VII, um, Thomas did progress up the ladder, but, you know, the corridor of power was very, very narrow with Henry VII and very, very crowded indeed. So Thomas really only sort of uh, built up a, a reputation in the king's household. Henry's style of kingship made courtiers less influential, and it was really difficult to change your career trajectory. So, for example, Henry VII would never have chosen a man like Thomas Boleyn for any, any, any important diplomatic mission. Under Henry's son, Henry VIII, that's really when we start to see Thomas emerge. So, yeah, what does change prior to 1522 when um, Anne comes back and sort of makes her debut at court? I find it really interesting that his rise seems to be um, 
accelerated when his children are of marriageable age, but he can't have been the only one using his kids in this way. Well, firstly, he didn't rise. Uh, he, he rose much earlier. Mm. Uh, as I, you know, really, with, with, um, with when Henry VIII actually ascended the throne, that's when we really start to see Thomas Boleyn's career take off. I mean, you know, you have these spheres of power at court. You have personal spheres and political spheres. And if you wanted to succeed at court, you had to be a kind of a shapeshifter. You had to be able to advise the young king. Uh, and, you know, Henry was, Henry was difficult. He was young. He was inexperienced. But he was always up for a good time. So you had to be able to entertain this guy. You had to be able to engage in manly activities while displaying virtue. Uh, so a man like Thomas, he had to actually acquire the skill to alternate between the formal spheres of court, the informal spheres, and demonstrating a physical prowess because that was what Henry wanted uh, in, amongst the men in his court. So it must have been quite manic for Thomas and his wife because they had to be engaged in everything that was going on at court. You know, they found themselves taking part in the expensive and ostentatious uh, entertainment given by and for the young king. The revels, the hunting, the, the jousting. Uh, in fact, we even see Thomas Boleyn participating in hand-to-hand -hand combat and wrestling, and he's actually paired against Henry in a feat of arms. So uh, I think, you know, Thomas ticked all the boxes very, very early on. He was intelligent. He came from good stock. He was well-liked. He exuded strength, agility, prowess. He could keep up with the young Henry. His career took off from 1509. By 1522, he was already well-established as a phenomenally popular diplomat, well-liked, well-respected. This was a man who was going places. And he was also cautious. I don't think that Anne Boleyn's uh, affair with Henry was actually going to be beneficial to him. I don't think he believed that for a second. This was a man who had built generation upon generation, year after year, on the family reputation. This could send everything up in flames. It's a really interesting way that I've not looked at it before. Yeah, me too. I was, just thinking, I was just thinking of Alex and Alex, Alex's mind going a little bit, oh, that's interesting. And that made me think, oh, well, that's interesting, actually. <laughs> but um, what about his first appointment as an ambassador? Can you tell us more about what this meant for him and his family? Yeah, so in 1511, uh, the chief architects of Henry VIII's uh, diplomacy were Richard Fox, Bishop of Winchester, and Thomas Wolsey. Now, Thomas Wolsey is only about seven or eight years older than Thomas Boleyn. Uh, and these two men were actually tasked with forming a team of diplomats for a foreign embassy. And Thomas Boleyn was, was a, a strange face in the, in the lineup because he was really the only one with no experience. And he was going uh, alongside Sir Edward Poynings, Richard Wingfield, and John Young. These were very experienced diplomats. I think perhaps Thomas had caught Fox's attention when he was part of the entourage escorting Henry VIII's sister Margaret to Scotland to marry King James, or perhaps he met Thomas through his father-in-law. I'm not sure, but they were taking a real chance on Thomas because it was a tricky mission. So this first mission, um, it was to do with the Holy League. Uh, Pope Julius II was seeking to curb Venetian influence in northern Italy, and he established an anti-Venetian alliance consisting of himself, uh, Louis XII of France, Spain's Ferdinand of Aragon, and the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. But then Pope Julius and Louis had this massive falling out. France was kicked out of the League. They reformed the League then to go against the French rather than the Venetians, which Henry loved because England was always France's traditional enemy. So uh, Thomas was about 35 years old when he was sent on this first mission in 1512 to the Habsburg court in the Netherlands. It was a really important step for Thomas because the Habsburgs were the most powerful European empire 
and Thomas and his colleagues were sent to Margaret of Austria's court. Margaret, of course, was the Emperor Maximilian's daughter and the powerful governess of the Low Countries. This ended up being an incredibly successful mission for Thomas politically and personally, even though they ended up being stuck at that court for so many more months than they thought they would. I think it should have been like a two-week mission, and by about month 11, they were sort of like, what are we doing here still? Uh, but anyway, it's really interesting because we see from the dispatches that Thomas really stands out. He's the one who rushes off at, I think, at 2 a.m., riding all night to get across the channel up to England, riding throughout the morning so that he can reach um, Henry, you know, before the end of the day because he just feels that negotiations are stalling. He needs new instructions and he's going to get them. Uh, and then we see, I think, after about a couple of weeks that he's no longer just signing the dispatches, he's actually writing the dispatches. And the reason why that is, is because Margaret of Austria singles Thomas out as the chief negotiator. She absolutely took to him in such a way and she clearly trusted him the most and he and they were they walked together they spent a lot of time together and she um i think it must have really grated on thomas's colleagues that this very powerful woman uh focused on him rather than than them so and of course this ended up being a, an enormous coup for thomas because she invited the young anne boleyn to her court so it was a breathtaking debut and it really cemented his position as a high a skilled ambassador who was really willing to think outside the box. It, it was an incredible embassy for him. Um, can I ask you just about his religion? Is he um, a reformer like his daughter? Yeah, historians generally place Anne at the centre of the Boleyns family's involvement in events leading up to the English Reformation. So this has really kind of informed our assumptions about the, the, the family's religious convictions and their influence more broadly. And there's this idea that, of course, whatever religious beliefs Anne favoured, so too did her family. I think what we really have to understand is... Uh, the generational divide here. You know, Thomas had grown up in a world of Catholic devotion and uh, very conservative spirituality and piety. His children were the next generation. They were exposed to that, the new learning. I think the evidence really shows that Thomas Boleyn was a, a man of deep and sincere and conventional piety. And he was surprisingly conservative. You know, he, he makes that all-important pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, which is a spiritual journey which marked him as a, a man of deep medieval tradition. And he also commissioned several scholarly works and religious works from the famed scholar Desiderius Erasmus, which really deal with conventional Catholic themes. He's very, very complex. He could be fiercely anti-clerical on one hand, and yet religiously conservative and old-fashioned on the other. And I really think this is a reflection of the religious complexities and, and ambigu ambiguities of the period. So when does George Boleyn enter the sources? So we start to see George around 1524, uh, although he could have actually been part of his father's entourage when he was an ambassador to France uh, in the in the late in the well, you know, 15, 18, 15, 19. And more than likely, he accompanied his family to France for that magnificent field of cloth of gold in 1520. So when he emerges from the sources, he would have been about 50. He would have been about 20 in 1524. Actually, that's the same age as his father when when he sort of comes into the record. So yes, uh, 15. 24, and then, of course, once he uh, marries Jane Parker, then he starts to emerge more frequently. 
Yeah, so he is married off to Jane, isn't he? Which is a great match on paper, but pretty disastrous. He doesn't come across as the nicest man, does he, looking at the evidence? Or is this more because um, of how Jane portrayed things? Uh, I think it's more to do with that bloody TV show, The Tudors, above all else. <laughs> I honestly, it's so funny when I hear this because I always want to kind of say, what's the evidence, though? Like, really, though, what's the evidence? I mean, when we look at George and Jane's marriage, you know, the Boleyns negotiated this match with the Parker family. Jane's, Jane's father, Henry Parker, Lord Morley, was a very highly respected courtier and famed translator. And that family had noble ties. It was a very good match. Now, there's no evidence that George and Jane were in an unhappy marriage. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's, no there's no children. Is that why? Well, I mean, that's but perhaps, but I mean, my goodness, I don't know what that mm. says about a lot of marriages yeah. out there in the world. Um, and I, I think that's really drawing a long bow. I think it's what happens really is that the political situation changed so uh, significantly when Anne became queen. I think that Jane, like a lot of a lot of older families at court, you know, they were very loyal to Catherine. She was the only queen they had ever known. And even though Anne was her sister-in-law, this was sort of this unprecedented situation they were all facing. I, I think that she cared very much for Catherine and her daughter Mary. And I think even though she didn't want to go against her family, she definitely didn't agree with what was going on. So I think that probably maybe put a wedge in between George and his wife. But certainly uh, there's no evidence that he, that he was ever abusive. He, you know, they had every reason to be optimistic for the future, but uh, just things got in the way. Mm. So let's talk, <clears throat> sorry, let's talk a little bit about Anne. To what extent is she pushing herself forward and how much of it is initiated and then pressed by her father, Thomas? Yeah, this idea that Anne's father and, and brother pushed her into the royal bed and then plonked her onto the throne, it's, it's such a complete fallacy and it really robs Anne of her own political ingenuity. You know, there's no evidence that the Boleyns schemed their way to the throne. In fact, there's ample evidence that Thomas tried to shield his daughter from the king. He takes her down to Hever. He tries to get her away from court. This isn't him plotting. This is him genuinely thinking, okay, we're going into a dangerous territory here. And, you know, Henry is a predator. He pursued this woman uh, to a point where I don't think they had any choice but to submit and, and for Anne to say yes. I think then Anne began to realize that she had to 
to fight fire with fire a little bit, that she couldn't just be this, this weak, submissive woman. She had to find herself. She found this inner strength and this courage and kind of met Henry on, on his own terms. You know, I, I, am, a, I am a woman of, uh, you know, of good stock. I come from a great lineage. This is who my father is. This is who my mother is. I am more than a mistress and I am worthy of more than that. So what do you have for me? And I think we have to really admire this, this power play of hers and not see it as, as something that's manipulative and scheming, but really just her standing up for herself and saying, I deserve more. Did they do any scheming as far as Wolsey's downfall was concerned, Thomas and George? You know, it's interesting because I, I love Wolsey. And what I really uncovered while researching Thomas's life for my PhD and for the book was that how the evidence really forces us to rethink that popular narrative of Wolsey and the Boleyns, you know, that they were embittered by political and personal rivalry, engaged in a long-running battle which resulted in, in Wolsey's death. Um, as I discuss in the book, Thomas's relationship with Wolsey, it spanned 18 years, from 1512 to 1530, and for many of those years, Thomas was actually Wolsey's right-hand man when it came to matters of diplomacy. So while Wolsey's downfall is linked to Anne's rise, there's, actually, there's really a lost thread here that needs to be restored in terms of their, their narrative. We have to remember that above all else, it's Henry who turns against Wolsey. And it's Henry who allows Wolsey's enemies, in particular the Duke of Norfolk and Thomas More, to dismantle Wolsey's power. Wolsey had failed. He failed to secure an annulment, and for that he was punished. And in the end, he kind of did weave his own downfall because he then actively worked against Henry and Anne and supported Catherine. So, of course, when the king turns against Wolsey, everyone turns against Wolsey. Uh, you know, th that downfall is so complex, but I would not say the Boleyns were, uh, in my opinion, at the forefront of the opposition. Everyone was there ready to take him down. Mm -hmm. So Henry's finally granted a divorce. He marries Anne, and her coronation is set for the 1st of June. But how does life change for Thomas and George? Uh, so, yes, um, obviously, you know, we know that George isn't actually present for the coronation. He was actually sent to France alongside his uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, to announce his sister's triumph, that she's pregnant and that she's queen, in case no one was paying attention. So he misses out on the greatest event of his sister's life. Um, there's also tension between Anne and her father around this time. I think they, they, were, they were overheard having a loud argument. I think that Anne didn't feel supported by her family. But I don't think anyone really knew what they were doing. I mean, this was completely uncharted territory. So it was, it was definitely a stressful time. Um, but I'm not sure that, you know, Thomas and George Berlin had been successful ambassadors for years. They had had busy careers as ambassadors and their missions were heavily connected to Henry's divorce, constantly trying to argue the validity of Anne's marriage, trying to shore up support in France. So it was nonstop. George was frequently moving between France and England in this never-ending political dance. Uh, but Thomas Boleyn was more than just a diplomat by this stage. He was also Lord Privy Seal. Now, this was an exalted position that dated back to the Middle Ages when all legal documents that the king authorised carried the mark of the Great Seal. I, think, I don't think we can really underestimate the enormous weight of the bureaucracy of the country that was on his shoulders. Um, those three years that Anne is Queen... They've got it all, haven't they, Thomas and George? What is life like for both men as a result of Anne's success? Um, and uh, Hilary Mantel gets much mileage out of mocking the title oh. Thomas gives himself. Explain that to us. Yeah, he actually doesn't give himself that title at all. It's so interesting. Um, Monseigneur is such a common title of courtesy. In fact, Chapuis refers to Thomas Boulin as Monseigneur Boulogne, 
quite often he refers to many of the gentlemen of court. It's, uh, and I think many of the clergy also call themselves that as well. She plucks that out of nowhere. And okay. that's okay. She's allowed to. She's allowed to. You know, God knows. It is a work <laughs> of fiction. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, it may, and it really just feeds into this idea that, you know, Thomas Blinn is this cocky, arrogant, self-obsessed man. Uh, but no, there's no evidence that he ever called himself that at all. I mean, more than anything, he was really just the, the Earl of Wiltshire, my Lord Wiltshire, then Monsignor. She's just trying to, to really show people, that, um, well, to really give the idea that he's French and fussy. I think is really what you're aiming yeah. for there. <laughs> yeah. So what is their life like um, with Anne as queen? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult. I think that uh, Tom, in Thomas's case, he's already built a reputation uh, that is quite separate from Anne's queenship. You know, he doesn't have to prove anything. I, I, you know, I know a lot of people would probably say, well, he just became Lord Privy Seal because of her. Well, guess what? That's not a position that you just give away, you know, as a reward to your father-in-law. This was a highly stressful uh, position. And, you know, uh, Thomas had really risen in the ranks um, in the households and, and the Privy Council for a year, you know, years prior. So I wouldn't say that's a reward. The Earldom of Wiltshire, perhaps he wanted to reward his father-in-law. You know, I, I really can't say either way, but certainly uh, Thomas Boleyn, didn't suffer as a result of his, of his daughter's uh, queenship, but I wouldn't say that it absolutely propelled him into some greater sphere. He was already successful. Now, George is a little bit of a different situation, uh, simply because he really struggled to be taken seriously, uh, just to, even just to step out from his father's shadow. You know, Thomas had been such a celebrated name in the diplomacy, whereas George's career was always seen as a consequence of Anne's queenship. And we really get a deep sense of frustration from George in his letters, you know, far from enjoying himself and gambling and womanizing, he was really used almost as a glorified messenger between England and France. You know, he was never assigned to a proper diplomatic mission. He was only ever used by Henry when he wanted France's political support. So that's, you know, that, that was very uh, uninspiring. And I think George craved more. I think there must have been a mixture of eagerness to prove himself and also anxiety at failing to live up to his father's reputation. Thomas had always been there to support his son when he needed assistance. So he was really a mentor and advisor. Uh, so, you know, George never really got the, the acclaim that I think he deserved because, of course, by the time his, his career really started to, to kick into gear, we're, we're talking about 1535, 1536, it, it never quite comes to fruition. So that's, it's deeply frustrating for him and, and for us trying to really piece his life together. So when does Thomas retire and what does that mean for George in the end? So as far as, well, I mean, Thomas Boleyn, I think, began to retire and step away from court sometime in, I think, 1534. Uh, he was about 57 at that age. Uh, he sort of stepped away from court life entirely. He went down to his estates in Kent and he left the political and diplomatic responsibilities to George. Uh, so, of course, Thomas was well respected in the county of Kent and he spent a great deal of time uh, sorting out legal matters for tenants and neighbours. He repaired bridges and estates throughout the county and he had to deal with a lot of little legal issues. Uh, so for George, I think it must have been very difficult to lose uh, such a support base, such a power base. He really only had his sister then. It was it was kind of the two of them against the world. Uh, Thomas, uh, 
you know, certainly, you know, far, far from, you have this idea that, of course, he, you know, clung to power for as long as he could. Well, obviously, he didn't. He was happy to let his son kind of take over. I think George had a lot of responsibilities on his shoulders to really represent the Boleyn family. So I think it was a mixed blessing uh, when, when Thomas retired. But, of course, George didn't have much time to enjoy that moment of power because we are talking, you know, already late 1534. So much is going on at court. Uh, Anne, and Anne and Henry are always fighting. You know, she's had miscarriages uh greater political machinations are underway and i think that must have felt a little bit out of control so let's do a wrap up a couple of things on george um he was a poet and it's been implied that he was a homosexual is that true uh no <laughs> there's absolutely short answer no uh, there's no evidence of this at all, but my goodness, has it become a difficult myth to banish. It really only began in the 1980s in a book written by Ruth Warnick, and it kind of took on a life of its own. And it's so irritating because it's really based on completely innocuous pieces of evidence which don't say anything. And it's interesting because I, I actually met Natalie Dormer at a party, and I said to her, what was all that about <laughs> with George Boleyn? And she laughed and she said, that's true time ticking boxes and I thought yes okay that sounds about right you know in the end I think it, it works in fiction it makes perhaps maybe it gives a little bit more um, depth to George Boleyn as a character because so little is known about him but it's definitely a myth we have to put to bed what about the poetry that's another weird one. Uh, it's not really an, el an element of his life that I, I delve too deeply into. Otherwise, my book would constantly be full of those annoying phrases like, well, he might have and he may well have and it's yeah. possible. <laughs> and I just, I'm just not that kind of historian. Basically, we don't have concrete evidence of this reputation for, for poetry. All we have are a few praises here and there which allude to his skill for poetry, and that's, that's fine. But none of the surviving poetry carries his name. Um, there's no evidence that he didn't have a genuine love of poetry. I'm sure that he did. And it's lamentable that we can't really identify his work. But I do think his reputation as a poet has, has been somewhat inflated as we kind of romanticise his character. Um, we've talked to Tracy Borman about Anne's fall in a lot of detail and what this meant, obviously, for Thomas and George. But I'm really interested to know, as far as you're concerned, can any of it be blamed on her father or her brother? Uh, not at all. We always tend to uh, blame the Boleyns as though they somehow played a role in it. But I think we have to really look squarely at Cromwell and Henry. You know, we know that Cromwell moves against Anne Boleyn. Uh, ever since Easter, things have been very, very tense between the two. He rounds up these men and he interrogates them. He accuses, of course, all of them of having, you know, committed adultery with Anne. And Henry is absolutely fine for him to, to do this, to move against the entire family. So, you know, I think for, for Cromwell also, it was really important that, he, that the entire family's reputation be blackened beyond any hope of rehabilitation. And destroying George was absolutely necessary. But, you know, these charges of incest obviously say a lot more about Cromwell than anything else. Um, but certainly we have to understand that Thomas Boleyn wasn't even at court when all of this was happening, as, as, as we already know. He had moved away. He'd almost retired. Now, he's suddenly dredged up when we have the, the commissions of Oya and Termina, and they are drawn up to investigate criminal activity and unspecified treasons. Now, Thomas Boleyn is actually appointed to, to one of the commissions, uh, but the commission he's appointed to is actually not for um, adultery uh, and, and, and incest. He's actually put onto the commission 
for, I think it's for Middlesex, which just deals with some kind of unspecified treason. He doesn't know what's happening. I think even by perhaps by the time he does know what's happening, what's he going to do? Who's he going to talk to? Who's he going to complain to? There's not some complaint box at Hampton Court where you can write something, you know, I'm not happy with how things are going right now, Your Majesty. You know, he can't do anything. So to really say that they played a part in it is, is so disingenuous to the two men. I, it, it absolutely destroyed the entire family. Um, oh, sorry, Bonalini, you do this one. No, that's right. Do we actually know what happens to him after the death of his children? Yeah, it really depends on which story you want to follow. Either we have this idea that he spent the rest of his days a broken man in exile, or apparently he carries on undeterred by the murder of his children. And, and I think, as Eric Ives says, continues to worm his way up the greasy pole. The true story is that Thomas and his wife remained in Hever for some time. They really shut themselves away from the world. But Cromwell and Henry wouldn't let him fade away. So Cromwell forces Thomas Boleyn to loan him his best garter badge in 1537 when Cromwell is admitted to the prestigious order. The letter that Thomas Boleyn writes to Cromwell accompanying the, the garter badge is so terse and so to the point, he basically says, I'm doing this because the king is making me. I'm, you know, I, I actually can't stand you, but I'm doing this for his pleasure alone. Now, uh, tellingly, Thomas Boleyn doesn't leave Hever to go to the chapter meeting. As a member, he should have been there, but he's actually conspicuously absent. I don't think he wanted to leave Hever to witness Cromwell wearing what was actually his. And on his part, Cromwell was particularly harsh on Thomas Boleyn when it came to the payment of legal subsidies and rent. He insisted that Thomas pay all of his uh, payments on time. Interestingly enough, he never pressed any of the other nobles, including Norfolk, to pay on time. All, all of them were in arrears. And there's also evidence of, of real tension between Thomas Boleyn and his brother-in-law, the Duke of Norfolk. Of course, the Duke presided over the trials of his children. So, for example, in, in July of 1537, Norfolk writes this really um, petulant note, shall we say, to Cromwell, complaining that Thomas's minstrel had been singing derogatory songs about the Duke at court. People had heard the ballad and he was really upset and he wanted Cromwell to fix it and make Thomas Boleyn's minstrel stop. Uh, Cromwell did write to Thomas saying, please stop, please like put a muzzle on your minstrel, basically. But as far as I can tell, Thomas did nothing to fix the issue. Now, of course, we have to understand that as a peer of the realm, Thomas can't just step away from his duties. So anything that happens, like, for example, the christening of Edward VI, you know, um, the, the, the legitimate son and heir of Henry, the, Henry VIII and Jane Seymour. He is christened on October 15th at Hampton Court. Boleyn is forced to be there as a peer of the realm. Uh, I, you know, and instead of asking, like, how could Thomas Boleyn be there and be present for such, a, such an event, I think we have to really ask, how could Henry have made him attend that? What a cruel thing to do to your ex-father-in-law. Um, in another twist of fate, Thomas Boleyn had to be, uh, he was present for the funeral of Jane Seymour, who, you know, she died just 12 days after giving birth. Now, we, we know that, of course, Elizabeth Boleyn dies in, in 1538. She dies in London. We have no record of Thomas Boleyn's reaction to her death, but we can assume it was one of grief. Interestingly, Elizabeth was not buried at Hever. She's buried at Lambeth, uh, which is close to her brother's residence in London. 
Now, choosing to be buried at Lambeth and not Hever is always seen as a sign that the Boleyn marriage was strained and further evidence that Thomas's actions or inaction in 1536 had caused a rift between the couple. But Lambeth was actually the, the burial place for members of the Howard family who died in the capital. So that's definitely a myth. Now, less than a year later, in March of 1539, uh, Cromwell gets a note from Thomas's steward down in Hever, Robert Cranewell. He just writes saying that, my good Lord and Master is dead. He departed this transitory world. I trust to the everlasting Lord. He, end, he made in the end a, a good Christian, the end of a good Christian man, I should say, and ever remembering the goodness of Christ. Now, it's interesting in the mirror and the light that Mantell has Henry VIII's kind of barking laughter, like, well, he's dead, you know, good, whatever, good riddance. But actually, Henry's reaction uh, to his father-in-law's death is a testament to the enormous respect that he held for Thomas Boleyn. Henry spent 16 pounds, which is about over 5,000 pounds in today's currency on masses for his father-in-law's soul. He also spent 30,000 pounds for public masses to be held in parliament. These are enormous marks of respect. They had nothing to do with Anne and they had everything to do with his many years of exemplary service to the crown. Again, thank you so much for coming on um, to talk to us today uh, as we sort of mark, commemorate, mark, I think is the right word, uh, the yes. execution of Anne Boleyn. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Join us a bit later for the last of our instalments on Anne Boleyn today, commemorating or marking the day of her execution in 1536. We'll be talking to Tracy Borman about her fall. Tracy has a TV show about to air about the fall of Anne Boleyn. So we get into great detail about exactly what happened, who we think was behind it, and how it all unraveled as it did. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. You just need to go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It'll be much appreciated. We'd really like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 